right, I want to have you go ahead, take your Bibles out. We are continuing our journey through the book of Acts, and we are in Acts chapter 27. We only got a couple weeks here left before we finish up Acts. Now, that's kind of incredible to me, because this has been nearly a year-long journey in the book of Acts, and uh, we're getting close towards the end. I've got a dear friend uh, named Joel Sedecase. Anybody of you know Joel Sedecase? Yeah, a couple. I got a few in this room, Joel. Uh, Joel and I have done quite a bit of ministry together, uh, just, you know, trying to win folks to Jesus in the city of Chicago, and, and he's, he's a bold warrior for Christ. He was a pastor at Park for a few years, and since he started a ministry uh, that really is a powerful ministry, uh, doing apologetics work across the city, but his little boy, his little, I think he's now five or six years old, uh, his little boy has had leukemia for many years. And uh, watching Joel's family go through that situation was one of the more remarkable sights in my life. Uh, They have a Facebook page uh, devoted specifically to caring for their son uh, and all their journey. And anyone who's followed him knows that journey has not been easy. I mean, it's been many nights in the hospital, many weeks in the hospital, many, many evenings where they weren't sure if this was kind of the last week. Um... And I remember one time in particular, it got really, really bad, um, and, and little Lukey was in the hospital, and, and he had put a blanket request for as much prayer as their family could possibly get. And I gave him a phone call. They were in the hospital praying, and you know, prayed with him. And then he goes, hey man, can you just do me a favor? Can you pray for my nurse? I got a, sh- a chance to share the gospel with her today. And something clicked in my brain in that moment when Joel asked me to pray for his nurse who he had a chance to share the gospel with. Here was a man whose son may be on the last few days, and by God's grace, the son is doing phenomenal right now. By the way, just that's the end of that story. He's doing amazing, very healthy. The doctors did a miracle. But here was a man who did not know what tomorrow would bring, and he wanted to make sure I took a moment to pray for his nurse, whom he had taken time during that day to share the gospel with. That did something to me pretty significant, Christians are unique in the world. Nobody suffers like a Christian. There's not another person on this planet who suffers, goes through hardship, trial, difficult circumstance like a Christian. We're unique. We are not these elitist, removed from suffering people that go through life understanding the sovereignty of God and then just say, well, it's in God's hands, so I'm removed from it all. No, actually, like Jesus, we enter into suffering with great pain, with great tears, Christians are not removed from suffering. We, we step into it and we live in the midst of brokenness and we experience brokenness. The Christian journey is not that you get saved by Jesus and then removed from all the brokenness that the rest of the world goes through. Absolutely not. That's not the gospel. Rather, there's something different about the way the Christian enters into all the unknowns in life. We have this trust that God is not, not only sovereign, meaning he's in control of all things, but he's providential. And what providence means is that his sovereignty is angled in such a way that there's purpose behind everything. It's all going somewhere. Providence is one of those words in the Christian's life that that allows them to suffer and go through every shipwreck of life in such a way that marks them as unique and different. I suspect that there's a few in this room today that really need today's message. And I don't know exactly who you are, but I suspect in a room this size that there's a number of folks who are in some form of shipwreck right now, some form of trial 
It's been said by one pastor that everyone in life is in one of three phases. They're either headed into a trial, they're in a trial, or they're headed out of a trial, right? That's it. Trials are all around our life. And the question is, as you go through that, do you understand the way providence works in you and marks you utterly unique? Recall when we left last week, Paul has been arrested, okay? So we've gone through all these missionary journeys of Paul, establishing churches throughout the entire Roman Empire, and now he's been arrested in Rome, or no, he's been arrested in uh, Jerusalem. He went he, to go see uh, Festus, where he stood trial, and they couldn't find anything wrong with him, but he knew he was going to get to Rome. And the way they end up getting him to Rome was, again, a work of providence, but he now is going to be shipped to Rome, all right? He knew he wanted to bring the gospel there, but now he's going there underneath Roman guard. He's a prisoner. He's going to go stand trial before Caesar. And you'd think, right, okay, so this, this is the journey. I gotta get from Caesarea up to Ro- Rome. I get in a boat, and I go to Rome, and then I stand trial before Rome. If we had our, uh, the way we think about our next steps in life, here's my plan, what I intend to do, what I think God's told me I'm supposed to do, usually it's a straight line from point A to point B. And then we get to chapters like chapters 27 and 28 in the book of Acts that show us that very rarely does God direct our steps in a straight line. God constantly redirects our path in unknown ways, but for his providence, his glory, and our good. So let's jump in to chapter 27. Uh, Chapter 27, we're gonna do all of chapter 27 and then verses 28, one through 10 today. So here's what I'm gonna do. Chapter 27 is the the single most detailed nautical storyline in the first century. Nautical, like, seafaring journeys, okay? The writer Luke writes with incredible detail Everything you need to know about the, the journey from Caesarea to Rome, every stop they made away, and every little detail. And one of the questions we should ask as a reader is, 28 chapters in the book of Acts, why does Luke take an entire chapter, chapter 27, to detail all the stops and misdirections and redirections on this sailing journey they took from Caesarea to Rome? What's the purpose of a whole chapter devoted to that? Let's jump into it, verses one to three. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to see his friends and be cared for. Now, let's try to get a little bit of context of what's going on here. Paul's on a ship. What we find out at the end of this chapter is that the ship contained 276 men, okay? So this is not a small ship of 15 to 20 folks. This is a pretty big ship, and the majority of the folks on it are prisoners. Now, why would a ship full of 276 folks, mostly prisoners, be headed to Rome in that day? The gladiator games, that's why. They would collect prisoners from all over the Roman Empire. You did something wrong, you get put on a ship, you get headed to Rome. Here we have Paul, who's been unjustly arrested, appealing to Caesar on a boat with a couple hundred men who are bound for the gladiator games where they will be torn limb from limb for other people's entertainment. What do you think the mood on that ship is? Okay? So let's slow down, let's enter into the reality. Sometimes we read these stories and we see them like a storybook detached from the human experience. Paul's on this boat with these men. 
And we see that he's got a couple of companions with him. One guy, a guy named Aristarchus. We actually met him already in Acts chapter 19, verse 29, uh, in the riot that took place in Ephesus. Paul and Aristarchus were co-laborers. And then also, if you look at this passage, the writer Luke is using the first person pronoun we again, which means that Luke was on this ship. One of the reasons why he's a lot, he can give so many great details about this journey Luke was on it. Paul was permitted to have some of his closest companions on the ship with him. Why was that? Well, I think it maybe was the same reason why this commander of the ship named Julius, when they pulled in at the port of Sidon, allowed Paul to freely enter the city of Sidon as a prisoner and go meet with his friends and be encouraged by them. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Why would that happen? Apparently, Paul had earned so much respect as a prisoner, as a Christian prisoner, that his guard Julius, knowing he would be killed if Paul escaped, his guard Julius so trusted the integrity of Paul that he would permit Paul to freely walk into Sedona and connect with his buddies while he was a prisoner. He didn't do that with any of the other guys in the ship. That was unique to Paul. Think about the witness Paul was having day in, day out in all circumstances. He's a prisoner. And yet even his guards know, this is a man of utmost integrity. I respect him, and I'm gonna take care of this guy on the journey. That's quite, it's saying something quite a bit. As we continue the journey, uh, the wind begins to pick up, and a storm begins to settle in. We pick, pick up again with me in verses eight through nine. We read this. Coasting along it, we came with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens. Notice, we came with difficulty. They're on this boat, and it, verses four through six, it tells you all these ports they stopped in, from Cyprus to Cilicia to Pamphylia to Myra. And then it gets to verse eight. Coasting along the coast, we came, dif- we came with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised him, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, mentions the fast. That's a very important little thing here, a detail in this story that's being told. The fast was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. All the Jews in that time period, all the Jewish Christians, would still have been taking one day, that one day, to fast through the entire day of Yom Kippur. Now, why is that important? Because that allows us to date this journey they were on. We know when Yom Kippur is. So it would have taken place in that year, October 5th. Now, from early November to early March, nobody sailed in the Mediterranean Sea. The weather was way too dangerous. So they've got a couple weeks here when most of the ships are pulling in, they're stopping all journeys across the Mediterranean, and the winds are beginning to pick up, and Paul's looking out at the weather, and he gives this advice to the captain of the ship. Now again, think of this. Not all the prisoners were giving advice to Julius, the captain of the ship. This was not like, hey, prisoners, what do you think we should do? Everyone get around, let's kind of take a vote. You think we should go or no? They were prisoners. Yet Paul... The leader, Paul, who's earned such integrity and and relational equity with the leadership on this ship, pagan leadership, has the boldness to stand up there and give some good advice. He says, I believe it's not good that we go on this journey. Now, this is not a prophetic word. So a few weeks ago, we we talked about prophecy in the New Testament church. I don't think this is a prophetic word. This is one of three times in Acts chapter 27 where Paul gives just good advice. And this is really important. 
here's Paul surrounded by non-believers on a ship that's headed into a storm. And Paul is a well-thought-through Christian man just simply listening to the Holy Spirit who gives good advice. This is so important, Christians. You have been placed in so many different spheres of influence among non-believers in the city. And, and what non-believers need is Christians who are in their life to just speak good advice. Not necessarily a prophetic word constantly, but to be a wise voice, a man of integrity. And, and what happens in this story is that his advice would have been the right advice to follow because they're going to end up shipwrecked on Malta. His advice would have been the right advice to follow. So even when the non-believers choose not to believe your advice, do they look back and say, you know what, over the long haul, this guy this woman, she's got some good advice to give. She's living a strong life, a faithful life, and if we listen to them over the long haul, things will go well with us. That's the kind of man Paul was, giving advice to non-believers of what to do. Just sound wisdom. Pick up with me in verse 14 and 15. They're on this journey, the winds are picking up. Verse 14, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So what's taking place right here? The word that we just heard there, the great wind, is where we get our modern word typhoon from. A typhoon sweeps down over the Mediterranean and they try to put their, their anchors down in it. They're so close to where they were trying to get to, to the island of Crete. They're just about there. They're literally on the coast of Crete and the storm comes along. They put their anchors in and they realize this ship is gonna get torn apart. The only hope we have is to pull anchor up and allow the wind to carry us wherever it goes. Talk about putting your hands in the life of God, right? There's nothing we can do. The, the storm is so strong, it's literally gonna blow, blow us apart. And then verse 20, we read this. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So slow it down here. I think what the author's trying to do for us is slow us down and get into the mindset of this journey. All hope had been lost. They're in the midst of a typhoon on a ship with a few hundred prisoners. They haven't seen light in two weeks. They're starving and they've got no hope. What was the mood like on that ship? Utter desperation. You know, I, I think there's seasons in life where God permits you to come to a place where you lose all hope in your ability to fix the situation. There are seasons in life where, for some providential reason that we don't fully understand the mind of God, he permits us to come to places where we are literally at the end of our rope, where, where we can't fix anything. There's no more steps to take. We've done everything we possibly can. And to us, it seems like we haven't seen the light in two weeks. It's that bad. And all you do is you pick the anchors up and you let the wind blow you where you are and you kind of put your hands up like this and you say, I've got nothing left. You ever been in a circumstance like that? Maybe some of you are in something like that right now. Listen to how Paul responds and what God does in the midst of that moment when a few hundred men have lost all hope. God does something remarkable through Paul, verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And yet now I urge you to take heart 
for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Imagine getting that word from Paul. Here's a man who these prisoners had watched Paul. They know his integrity. They know he's a man of prayer. They've probably seen him praying day in, day out on this ship. All these nearly 300 men watching him. And now that man stands before them and says, look, cling to God's word. I know you can't see it. I know the skies are really dark right now and you're starving, but I'm gonna cling to God's word and I advise you to do the same. That must have came with a lot of power that day. Something remarkable happens. Shortly after that word, they spot a bay. Today, that bay is called St. Paul's Bay. You can go to it. It's on the island of Malta. And they steer their ship towards the bay, except the ship runs aground on a sandbank. The sandbank is still there at St. Paul's Bay. You can literally go walk on it today. They steer the ship onto the sandbank, not realizing they've just shipwrecked, but they're still in the midst of a typhoon. Now what do we do? All the, 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 the men of the Roman army who are on the ship, they know if one prisoner escapes, they die in their place. That was Roman policy. By the way, that's why the guards at Jesus' crucifixion put a spear up inside of his heart and lungs. Right? That was the reason for it. There, there was, they had to make sure everybody died. If, if your prisoner died, if your prisoner escaped, you as the guard died in his place. And so the guards come up to Julius and they say, look, we have to save ourselves. The beach is right there. We can't let all these prisoners go free. Let's kill them all. But Paul had earned such favor with Julius that Julius would not let them harm one prisoner's head. Can you imagine? Just get into that circumstance what kind of impact Paul was having on the men around him, even while he was imprisoned. That in the moment when they... Their life was at stake. They decided to spare a few hundred prisoners for the sake of sparing Paul's life. And that day, Paul says, let's swim. And if you can't swim, grab some of the broken planks from the ship and let's all get to the shore. And by God's grace, all 276 men from that ship made it onto the island of Malta. Now what we've seen in chapter 27 is God's providential hand guiding a ship through a storm onto a little island. Like I said, providence means this, God's sovereignty with a purpose. God is not just over all things, but he's guiding all things. It's a, a, def a definite plan, a definite set place where God's leading all people, your circumstances, your journey, your trial. He's leading you through all of it. Nothing happens without God's authority over it. It's very important for the Christian most of us like the idea of providence until we're on the shipwreck. <laughs> and then what happens is we get on the shipwreck and we all throw our hands in the air and run around wild. <laughs> and we forget our God. And Paul sets this different pace for us as Christians where the theology he knows to be true when things are going well stays with him when the shipwreck takes place and when it seems really hard because theology is not only true when things are going well, theology is true in the shipwreck. God is providential. And as a Christian, you can trust the tender, merciful, loving, kind, compassionate, generous, abundant, providential hand of our king. He's proven himself over and over again. 
The scenario Paul was in was certainly unique to Paul, and yet for us, there's so many similarities here. Uh, one of my pastors at Park, Jason Malone, he, he quoted from this passage, he has this phrase he says, he says, you know, God oftentimes directs, redirects, and shipwrecks us on our journeys. He's got this plan, he directs, he redirects, and he shipwrecks. And, and we don't know why he does the things he does, but he does them, and it's for his glory and for our good. And some of us are in the season of being directed by God. You're at that first stage, you, you, you know where you're going, you're headed to Rome. That was Paul, he got on the ship, he was bound to Rome, he knew he was supposed to go there, and as far as you can see, it's from point A to point B, that's where you gotta go. And, and frankly, being in a season of being directed by God is, is, is really a sweet season. We actually saw this earlier. There was a different boat journey Paul took earlier in the book of Acts. And remember it said there was a definite wind at his back and they made a straight course to coast. Do you remember that? And we talked about how sometimes you find yourself in God's will and it's just like the winds at your back. And you're just going, you're flying. Point A to point B, you're being directed by God. Things are good. There are seasons of life where you're directed. And when you're in that season, what I say is dig deep, be as impactful as you possibly can. Some of you are in a season of being redirected. Redirection is a season of confusion. Paul was on his way, but then all of a sudden they hit one port and the wind came down and the, the ship got blown around the lee of Crete. Now what, what are they doing going down that way? He was supposed to go up to Rome over here. You know what it's like to be redirected by God? The thing about redirection is that it's very confusing because you thought you heard from the word of God. You thought you knew what God was calling you to do. And so you had a certain level of certainty, Holy Spirit-filled certainty. This is where God's calling me. I know where I'm supposed to go. It's right over this way. I was going that way. I had all the signs, all the people affirming that along the way. This, and, and then you, you're, you're tempted to feel like this must be some unprovidential moment in my life. This must be something that's out of control. Things must be wrong. And what happens in those moments is more often than not, if you're like me, what you tend to do in redirected moments is you try to take as many matters into your own hands as possible and literally steer the ship back onto a course that God no longer has you on. Meanwhile, God's saying, wait, I'm always doing new things in your life. The set directive that I had for you two years ago it's not necessarily fundamentally different. It might just look a little different in this season. Some of us are being redirected. And some of us are being shipwrecked. And in, in the seasons of shipwrecks, what we're forced and what we're oftentimes, what God's mostly trying to do in our life is bring us to a place where we literally stop depending on ourselves, And we literally are forced to cry out to God, I don't understand this and I can't fix it. And and the, the hope with being shipwrecked is that the next time you're being directed, you take that same posture with you. The hope with being shipwrecked is that God actually uses the shipwreck to form a dependence on God that could not be formed unless he first shipwrecked you. Because it's only then that you're wounded and you have the scars because most of life is learned through the scars of life and you look at your scars and you realize, I'm not gonna make that mistake again. This time I'm actually gonna trust him. And stop taking matters in my own hands. And so shipwrecks, if you really look at it over the long arc of our life, are the very best things for us. Ooh, hard to say as a guy just coming through a shipwreck. That's tough to say. But somehow God is using the shipwreck to form things in you that should be used for the next time you're being directed by God. What happens? What could God possibly have been, been doing? Ch chapter 27 slows down, step by step, this lengthy 
insight into a shipwreck. All to get us into the mindset of these men and to see Paul's navigation of it. For what purpose? Why would God allow this to happen? Well, let's jump in. Verses one through six of chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, that means after they got to the bay, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. And Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. A viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto Paul's hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, pause there. We've actually seen this circumstance happen to Paul a couple other times in the book of Acts, where Paul does remarkable things and the people in the town think he's a god. And we know Paul's response. I'm not god, but let me tell you about the guy who is. I'm friends with him. That's how Paul handles those situations. But think about the moment we just saw. They're on this island with natives, and the word native there simply means they were non-Greek speakers. They were the local people from this island. They spoke their own language. It was not the, the major language of the Mediterranean. First of all, we see this. Paul is shipwrecked cold. They're with a bunch of men. The natives are building a fire to warm them up, and Paul is there assisting building the fire. That's a remarkable detail. <laughs> most, most of us would curl up and take a rest from two weeks of no food and being completely shipwrecked. We just rest. But Paul is a man who's always looking for a chance to serve. And so even when he's at the end of his rope, when he's got nothing left, he's serving the other few hundred prisoners by gathering these stiffs. See, look at this. Men, look to Paul for a moment. Men, particularly, I want you to look at Paul. This goes for all men and women, but men, I really wanna call you up in this moment. Men, when there's something wrong, you take charge. When there's something that needs to get done, you take leadership. That's part of your responsibility in this church and in this city and in your homes is when there's an issue that needs to get done, even when it's a fire that needs to get built and you're exhausted and you're tired and you're wet and you're cranky, you build the fire. That's what you were made for. That's your design. And Paul sets the pace well for us right here. Second, do you notice in the natives this innate sense of justice? Even though they're detached from the biblical worldview, even though it's kind of off a little bit, they have this sense of justice. Paul gets bit by a viper and they go, oh man, he must be, uh, he must be a murderer and for, for that to happen to him. It's interesting, when you go to any island, if you were to go to see native people who have been largely untouched by Western civilization or by civilization as a whole, and you were to go there to any island, every island on the planet, any people on the planet have a sense of justice in them. It might not be exactly in line with biblical justice, but they have a sense of justice and how the balance of right and wrong works out. The only way to explain, just so you know, as a bit of apologetics for you, the only way to explain the reality that every human being that's ever been born on this planet has a sense of justice built into them is the Imago Dei. That's it. Without the biblical worldview, you cannot explain the fact that every people group and every tribe across the globe has woven into the fabric of their DNA a sense that there is justice, even when they're wrong about it. Now, here's the big question from this. What's with the snake? What's God doing with the viper? Why would he do that? What a funny story to be recorded in this, that he'd get bit by a viper and then spared. 
Well, maybe this is what God's doing. Maybe of the 276 men that just got shipwrecked on the island of Malta, he wanted everyone's attention on one man, just for a moment. He wanted to make sure that nobody missed what he was about to do, and it was gonna happen through that guy. See, look, shipwrecks often are followed by viper bites. <laughs> and a viper bite is when it's just like you're getting kicked when you're down. You've been shipwrecked already. It's been hard enough. This is, this is what God does. And then, and then after all of that, you're just trying to build a fire and the viper is clinging onto your hand. And you look up and you say, it's going to get any worse? I got to get bit by a viper too? But providential Paul, who knew what God was up to, might have looked at that and said, well, what an opportunity this is. Because now this island's all looking at me at the moment, and I know I've got a word to say. Pick up with me, verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius. Publius eventually became the bishop of Malta in church history, just so you know, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Now, it does not say in that passage with words from the passage that there was a great revival of salvation that took place as well. But from every story we've seen, the pattern of the book of Acts from start to finish is where Paul goes, there's words of deed and words of action. Words of, uh, words of gospel being shared and then words of power in terms of the spirit going forth and healing people. And we have to assume that an incredible spiritual revival broke out this day on this little island of Malta as God began to heal many people through the hands of Paul on the island. Why was God redirecting the ship? Why was God shipwrecking the ship? Why was God sending the viper onto Paul's hand? Why? It was so that a revival would break out on the island of Malta. That was his purpose behind all of it. God manifests the spirit through Paul in such a way that all of the island has to turn their attention to the God of Paul, Jesus Christ, sitting on his throne, bow their head in worship, and believe in him. This is the gospel of word and power coming forth at the exact same time. Can you see God's providential hand in this? From the start of the entire journey, God directs, redirects and shipwrecks. This is why the wind blew so hard when Paul was on the ship. This is why those pagan leaders ignored Paul's advice. This is, this is why the typhoon blasted the ship. This is why the angel spoke to Paul. This is why every moment on the journey that was so difficult of chapter 27 took place so revival could come to the island of Malta. Okay, let's make this pretty personal for us. This passage is a calling for us to believe in God's providence in an entirely new way. It, you, you have to read Paul and his encounter on the island of Malta and look at God in new ways. If you don't, you miss the chapter. God is constantly guiding his people. And one of the great dangers that we fall into, the traps we fall into, is that we fail to see God's providential hand in all circumstances. And so then we begin to lose hope, we begin to lose God focused, and what happens is we begin to live a very lazy, self-centered life of ministry uselessness. 
because we're so afraid to step into the redirects and the shipwrecks that God might have outlined for us if we were to actually go through with his life. Let me say that again. What oftentimes happens is that we're so fearful to take any steps of faith for fear that just maybe God will redirect or shipwreck our life if we were to step out in ministry boldness in what the Bible calls regular Christianity, that we try to avoid the redirects and shipwrecks altogether. And what ends up happening is we begin to build lives that are spiritually lazy and ministry-wise useless. And that is not what God's called us to. I call this bubble wrap Christianity. <laughs> what we do is we try to wrap ourselves in as much bubble wrap as we possibly can and, and, and just stay out of it all. Just lower your risk of everything. I, I don't want to step into the difficult places. I don't want to step into the difficult circumstances and the difficult conversations. That one sounds like it might ruin my, uh, my image of myself if I stepped into there or if I put my name behind that one over there. So, so here's what's safer. Back up. This is a better version of Christianity. Wrap myself in bubble wrap, 10 layers of it, 10 layers of bubble wrap, and then hop to church on a Sunday, right? Come in, talk to a bunch of other people that are wrapped in bubble wrap. Hey, you doing good today? Yeah? Let's bump into each other. It sounds pretty fun, right? And then hop back to home and lay on our couches and think that's Christianity. That's Christianity for the last 50 years in this country. Bubble wrap Christianity. And here's the thing. What happens if you live bubble wrap Christianity is you read things like Acts chapter 27, 28, and the subtitle of the sermon should be someone else's life. It's just someone else's life. It has nothing to do with me. I don't get shipwrecked. I don't get redirected. I've got insurance policies for that, right? I live this thing pretty easily. I'm not getting in arguments with people. I'm, I'm, I don't have anyone who hates me for the sake of the gospel. I'm not going out there standing up for babies' lives in the womb. I'm, no, that's not me. I'm not going to do it. But why? Because bubble wrap. And then I come to church, and I think that's Christianity. It's not in this book. You won't find that. That's not Christianity. And if you're visiting with us today, I'm sorry for every time you heard bubble wrap Christianity somewhere other than this church. And this church will not be bubble wrapped. There's too much work to do. This city is burning if you haven't noticed. And there's a group of people here with the gospel that need to live lives of integrity, stepping into the broken places with risks. And when you risk greatly for the gospel, you will leave those risks with scars because shipwrecks hurt and God redirects and he shipwrecks. But I'll tell you what, you're better for it at the end of the journey. You know Jesus a whole lot better. You're ready for heaven because you're walking with Jesus better. And along the way, you get a lot of fruit. See, Christianity, when it's lived this way, is bold, and everybody around you, the 275 other men on that ship, are looking in on a life like Paul's, and they're saying, I missed it. And by the way, they're all about to die in Rome in the gladiator games. And there's a little revival among those prisoners that's taking place as well. And Paul's probably celebrating up with them on heaven, saying, remember that time we are on that ship together? Bubble wrap Christianity will not cut it. And we have been stuck in it for far too long. We're more concerned with our own wealth and prosperity than we are with the lost souls of our neighbor. We're more passionate about our sports teams than we are about anything having to do with the kingdom of God. We're more absorbed in social media than we are in the Bible. We don't know the names of our missionaries that our church sends out. 
absolutely no risk, risk-free Christianity. It's not the Bible. It's not the Bible. Do not bubble wrap yourself. See, it's the fire that purifies you, right? It's the fire that purifies you. It's the lion's den that reveals God's kindness. It's Pharaoh's chariots that form leadership. It's walking on the waves that forms faith. It's the garden of Gethsemane and the agony of prayer that strengthens your resolve. And it's the shipwrecks that open your eyes to the glory of God's sustaining power in your life. And if you want to avoid all of those things, it's not Christianity. It's something else. God wants to form Holy Spirit dependence in you, but it takes risk. It takes you saying, I'm actually going to live out the things we just studied in this book. See, the gospel is that you have been saved by grace, by this incredible Savior who came and lived a life that you could never live and took your place underneath the wrath of God on your behalf. He literally shed his blood so that you could have life to the full, And the life you now live is not your own anymore. It's been redefined. We just sang it. Redefined by your king who's building his kingdom and who's called you an ambassador of Christ. And he's given you his Holy Spirit to step into broken places so that where you go, light goes. Remember when Jesus says you're the salt of the earth? You know what he said after that? What do you do with salt that's lost its saltiness? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown on the sidewalk and trampled on. That's what he said. See, see, he makes you a Holy Spirit-filled kingdom ambassador so that where you go, kingdom justice comes. Where you go, kingdom peace goes. Where you go, lives are saved. Where you go, salvation goes. It's the Holy Spirit that does it all through you, and no one's off the hook. Every Christian gets the Holy Spirit. Praise God. That means every spirit's gonna be redirected and shipwrecked if you're willing to listen to the way the Spirit's working. Romans 8, 37 to 39 and all these things were more than conquerors. More than conquerors. More than conquerors. We don't just conquer. We more than conquer through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor light nor depth nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. More than conquerors. That doesn't just mean you overcome, but it means you've got enough to help others overcome and meet Jesus along the journey. You've got one life to live. One life to live. Pour it all out on the battlefield. Every bit of sweat you have, pour it out on the battlefield. That's what you see in Paul here. Now, let me speak to those who are in shipwrecks for a moment. I want to close this way. Some of you are in storms right now, and and there's a way to miss what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, Behold Jesus. Cling to Jesus. And if you're in a shipwreck, you need to hear something very, very carefully. Number one, as your pastor, I see you. You are not forgotten, and you are in a community of shipwrecked believers who are all going through stuff in their life, and we need to encourage each other and cling to each other. While God's providential plan of kingdom growth involves devastating shipwrecks along the way, you have a comforter in Christ. I came across this precious verse. I read a sermon by Charles Spurgeon a couple weeks ago. Isaiah 42.3, it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You ever seen a candle in, in the flame when it's just got nothing left? It's just on its littlest, tiniest bit of light, and it's about the slightest breath, just, and it gets blown out. That wick, he will not quench it. See, if that's you in this room today, if if your light is just holding on to the smallest, tiniest bit, 
The promise of our great comforter is that he desires to take your burdens and he will not quench that wick. He will not break a bruised reed. If you're barely holding on, look to Jesus, cling to him. Don't give up, don't don't stop looking to him. He's got better and bigger plans, that's this passage, than you ever would have designed for your life and sometimes shipwrecks are the way he gets you there. It's when we feel we don't even have the strength to pray that God so often strikes a bolt of lightning into our heart and teaches us how to truly bend the knee. And so often that only when all hope is lost and we feel at our weakest that we finally learn to cling to Christ for frankly the first time in our life. He sustains you. He holds you up. Don't lose heart. Behold Jesus. Think of the old hymn. Here in the maddening maze of things, when tossed by storm and flood, to one fixed ground my spirit clings. I know that God is good. And if my heart and flesh are weak to bear an untried pain, the bruised reed he will not break, but strengthen and sustain. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness that you sustain sinners like us. God, I pray for those in this room today that are being redirected and shipwrecked. God, I pray that you would sustain them mightily, that you'd show them your great love, that you'd build something powerful in this church, that we would not bubble wrap our Christianity and tame it so that it's unidentifiable with the Bible, but that we would be bold Christians who go where you call us and live integrity-filled lives for everyone around us, no matter our circumstance. I pray in Jesus' holy name.